the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp. And again, today we have another special guest, author, uh, best-selling author, Heather Hamilton. And she's joining us to discuss her book, Returning to Eden, a field guide for, for the spiritual journey. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you can make it. Um, one of the reasons why I asked you on the podcast, well, there's several reasons. Uh, I think we have some things in common. Um, I really like uh, your the, the way that your book explains the uh, uh, biblical stories in a very unique way. And then um, uh, I, I, uh, I really resonate with some of your things that you went through. So, I mean, you're, mm -hmm. we're going to get into some of that, but you had some kind of a mystical experience. You had a painful time, a faith crisis, and so many people like uh, go through that. I went through that myself. So uh, we're, we're going to get into that, but there's just a lot of connection points that, that you had with my journey and what I want to bring to my audience. And so, mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really glad that you could join us. So why don't we get started and uh, um, get into, you know, why did you decide to write this book and, and what's your what was your goal in writing this book? Yeah. Um, OK, well, I, as you kind of mentioned, which I don't know if, you know, you want to get into it right now or not. But, yeah, I, I had a, a mystical experience, um, which was kind of it was simultaneous with what would could conventionally be called a nervous breakdown <laughs> it was like that's um, what i call mine too yes yeah <laughs> at first it was a nervous breakdown and you know in retrospect it was my spiritual breakthrough yeah. um but so yes it was um personally a lot was crumbling for me internally and then because of the experiences that i was having um it uh, just it obviously forced this theological deconstruction. I realized that my worldview didn't, it didn't line up with reality. My theological worldview just wasn't jiving with what I knew was yeah, reality. Right. Um, cognitive so, dissonance, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm not sure whether there was more cognitive dissonance when I was sort of like before all this, you know, the theological stuff that you kind of have to. Right talk yourself into. Um, but yeah, I was seeing the cognitive dissonance like this does these puzzle pieces don't fit together anymore. Right. Um, and so when this was happening, 
we were very, my, my husband was the music director at this large influential um, mega church, evangelical mega church. And um, it was just our whole world. And so I was um, sorting a lot of this, you know, new theological insights out privately, um, some publicly, but it was, I got to a point where I felt like I loved all of these people and there was no way to communicate about the deepest things I cared about anymore. Whereas before we, you know, we were kind of on this, I was on the same page in a lot of my relationships and, and then I felt very isolated and like there was this barrier to communication. Right. Um, And so I wrote the, I started writing the book, maybe um, I think like about three and a half years after that, the mystical experience, which kind of propelled all of that. Um, and the primary reason why I knew I had to write it was uh, I have three little kids who, are, you know, were in the Bible belt. A lot of the environments are really saturated with this one specific form of Christianity, this one particular narrative about it. And so I, I, ever since sort of like waking up through the mystical experience, I just felt this urgency in life. Like not, not that I was thinking about death all the time, but it was like living, knowing that you could die, you know, it's like this time is precious and I'm, I have one life. Um, And so I would kind of think if I was ever not here, like I need my kids to understand the journey that I've been through and the way that I see it. So um, I, I wrote it in a way where I where I would feel like if I was ever not here and my kids could have this book, they would have a deep understanding of sure. my journey and the way that I see things. But then I also wrote it um, just because I wanted to communicate with people who didn't understand. And as you probably know, once you start um, – seeing things differently theologically, it elicits a lot of fear and projection from people. Mm -hmm. And so the communication barriers just felt really hard to overcome in real time sometimes. And so it was sort of like, this is, I I want people who, I so want people who don't understand to just understand where I'm coming from. So I tried to anticipate all the different pushbacks, which just, you know, reading your book that you're about to release, I could see the same sort of thing, you know, um, you know, here's the objections that I'm anticipating. Let me go ahead and address them. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, that's kind of like the, the way I felt too, when I came out with my first book on, Mm -hmm. which was more like a memoir, like, you know, here's, here's my story. This is why I'm changing. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, you still get pushback of course, but (laughs) at least you got something on record to say, okay, here's, here's what's really going on. Right. Um, and you mentioned my book too. I forgot to say that's another reason why I wanted you on the podcast. We got the same publisher, Choir Publishing, which is working yes. out really good for me, and I assume it's working out great for you too. And uh, yeah, and so um, yeah, my, my book is uh, Breaking Bad Faith, and uh, it's going to be uh, focused on some of the retributive narratives, mm-hmm. exposing those in uh, evangelical uh, Christianity. And then, and then talking about a, a path of peace that really, uh, you know, contradicts the retributive narratives and really 
is is much more um, appealing because mm-hmm. it's more historical in my in, yeah. in my view. So, um, but your book very unique. I love the way you you weave these stories. You've got lots of small chapters, mm-hmm. and each one is dealing with these stories. And you've done a great job of 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 putting it all together, making you know both deconstructing and rebuilding a faith, and then look a new way of looking at the Bible. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, uh, let, let's go back a little bit to, you mentioned the uh, emotional or faith crisis you had. Um, what was that moment like? What was, what exactly happened to you that, uh, that caused you to have that crisis, but also you had an experience that you said um, was the most real you ever experienced in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, without, sorry to be a little bit vague about like what led up to it, but it was a, it was a personal crisis um, where I just had sort of suddenly some um, major revelations about my life. There was um, uh, uh, some unacknowledged and undealt with trauma that I had been carrying um, for most of my life that I, um, that I woke up to and, um, and understood that 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 trauma had really been um, quite a catalyst for a lot of the decisions in my life. Um, and so kind of zooming out and seeing it from a 30,000 foot view, it essentially felt like I had not lived my own life. Um, if that yeah, made sense, right. that there were right. just, you yeah, know, because you got, you got quote saved or in the, gotten in the church when you were like seven years old, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah right. So yeah, from a very young age, um, really immersed in that. And I mean, I think anyone coming out of evangelicalism who really like bought into it sincerely has, has a little bit of that maybe going on in terms of feeling like, oh, I didn't have a lot of agency in my life or it was uh, all my decisions were through this filter of like, what does God want for my life? And feeling like I had to do certain things or go in certain directions in my life that I maybe wouldn't have chosen for myself had I just been felt free to be like, what, you know, what do I want to do? What do I want to feel passionate right. about or whatever? Right. Um, but uh, essentially on, on a personal level, it was kind of this uh, waking up to the fact that um, because of my personality and um, my you know, life circumstances or the environments that I had been in, that my brain had essentially been programmed a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and right. which I felt like was me. Um, and then I kind of realized that it wasn't. It was like I was just sort of unconsciously living out this script that was very predictable based on my temperament plus the environment. It was like, oh, you were going to feel exactly like this. You were going to make these kinds of decisions. Um, so anyway, all that to say is I sort of kind of quickly had um, a, a nervous breakdown slash identity crisis that happened like within the course of a week where my nervous system really just imploded. And um, for the first time in my life, it was like I was having back to back to back to back panic attacks that oh, I wow. could not um, couldn't get a grip on. And I had just um, had our third child. So it's like, I had a 10 week old, you know, where I'm trying to like 
nurse and we're not getting any sleep and I'm panicking all the time. And um, so I, it just very quickly went from like this really well put together, you know, Christian American successful, like right. um, woman who has it all together to this swing into um, yeah, just a really helpless desperate place where I wasn't aware of any resources that were out there that could have helped me. And I really, I mean, honestly, just feared that if I asked for help, that my only real option would be like to go to like a psychiatric hospital. And this just felt like the worst case scenario because I had just had a baby, you know? And so I knew like, you can't bring a baby there, you know? Yeah. Right. So, um, so anyway, I, I kept trying to just, you know, strong arm myself into getting it together. And, um, yeah, it, I just really descended one night into this pit of crying out to God. Um, and for the first time, like just really knowing that there was nobody on the other end of the line that I was, it, it just, it was like the, my God concept that I had carried with me for my whole life totally evaporated. Like I just knew this, this is not not working. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not as it only is not working, but like, it's not real. Whatever Mm -hmm. I think is supposed to be happening or whoever I think is supposed to be out, like doesn't exist. Um, And it was, it was a moment in hell where I recognized like, this is what hell was. Um, and it, it, it felt like just my life was in danger. Like I just couldn't, not that I wanted to die, but just like, I can't live like this. Right. So very, very quickly, I remember, um, you, you had this encounter with this person and you felt love emanating from that person. Tell us about that. Yeah. So when I, I had this moment where it was like, nobody's coming to help me, um, you know, I finally you know, told my husband, like, I need some help. I don't know what that means, but I think that we need to call 911. And so we did. And when um, the EMS team showed up, I opened the door and immediately recognized that the person standing across from me was a transgender person. Mm-hmm. And um, this was just completely unexpected for me. Like, again, we live in a really conservative area very evangelical context. And so my orientation here, which I didn't, I didn't even know that I felt like this until this moment where I was desperate and needed help. And the person there to help me was someone who up until that point, I felt like I'm the one who has the truth. Who's yeah, supposed right. to be helping people <laughs> like you, you know, right. Yeah, um, the us versus them mentality yes. and, sh- and she or he was uh, a them he or she was a them <laughs> it, yes yes right. um and so i i recognize that oh i don't i don't trust this person to help me because i've been trained to feel like they're lost you know like how right. how can yeah. someone who's lost help me <laughs> you know exactly um but there was nothing else to do except for just you know, start word vomiting what was happening. And immediately it was like for the first time in this whole mess, someone saw me and it was like, you know, I had tried 
been trying to get my family and people around me to understand like the severity of the crisis that was happening internally. Um, and they wanted to help, but I knew that they didn't understand what was yeah, going on. Right. Um, and this person did. And it was like, suddenly, like it, it was just like this bubble of, um, of love. I don't know. I, I think that that sounds a little bit weird, but it was like just time fell away and it felt like I was suspended in eternity with just me and this person. And it was the very, like the palpable essence of Christ was coming off of right. this person. Yeah. That's and, amazing. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what a shocker. I mean, you know, yeah. it's like totally flipping everything in your whole worldview kind of, you know, Yes. And yes. then you experience love from someone that you would never ex expect to. Um, yes. Yeah. It was an encounter with the other. Um, right. And I have like the opening chapter in my book um, talks about St. Francis having like a very similar mm -hmm. experience um, of encountering the leper and, you know, um, up until that point, having this sort of resistance to em embrace you know, the other or some, someone that he had judgment about or whatever, and having this, like having the defenses drop and this compassionate, vulnerable moment with this unexpected person, and then coming to realize that it was like Jesus Christ himself that he had for him. Like he like kissed the leper. Yeah. Um, right. Right. And th that's exactly how I felt. Like it right. wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, oh, this person was really Christ-like to me. It it was Christ. Like the yeah. the vertical orientation that I had to like God is up here and I'm down here. It was suddenly this horizontal orientation yeah. where I knew that Christ was in her, speaking through her, and I also knew that that Christ had awakened in me. I. I recognized something in myself that had been there the whole time, but I had really been asleep to it. Right. Um, no, that, that's excellent. Um, I've often said that, you know, people don't change. They don't, unless uh, something very painful or emotional happens in their mm -hmm. life. And um, I think a lot of, a lot of people can resonate with what you're saying, especially with deconstruction, because usually mm -hmm. something painful has to happen before people kind of wake up or, right. you know, they get spiritually abused or they, they, you know, they can't rec they can't reconcile the, the cognitive dissonance anymore and they want to address it and, or, and, and something, something happens that, that goes, okay, I gotta, I gotta deal with this. Right. I can't yeah. keep sweeping it under the rug, yeah. but, but it also happens that, um, you know, you, you came into the church and you're, you know, you grew up with it pretty much. Mm -hmm. And so you don't really have a choice. You're kind of like go into it and everyone, everything, everything is already, the table's already set and you're just yeah. you know showing up and yeah. doing what you're supposed to do. Right. But then the other people come into the church in their formative years when they have a, some kind of a life crisis. And that's actually what happened to me. I had a nervous breakdown in college, but I'd already had all these, uh, born again, Christians witnessing to me and my mother and my, you know, my, my family and my, my youth group and all this stuff. And so you have this, you go, well, heck, they say, this is the answer, the key to everything. So I guess mm -hmm. I'll jump in. And then, but then a later when I deconstructed another faith crisis, mm -hmm. kind of similar to what you're talking about happened to me. And that got me on the road to deconstruction. So it's, it's the, their, their patterns are very, 
uh, similar with people's experiences. And mm -hmm. I love that your mystical experience. I think that's a great uh, lesson for all of us about how Christ can show up in the most unlikely places. Um, uh, what, what, what about the, the Bible? You've got a lot of chapters in your book about Bible stories, but how do you read the Bible now compared to when you were an evangelical? Mm -hmm. Well, when I was an evangelical, it was all literal. Um, you know, you, you probably already like dissected this, uh, you know, before on your podcast, but it was, um, you know, you're, you're a sinner from the beginning. Um, yep. the goal Rig is to go to heaven and original, original sin, original depravity, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 All of that. And so, um, you know, when I was a child, it was, you have to pray this prayer sincerely. You know, you have to believe that this is the cosmic arrangement sincerely. You know, Jesus is your payment. You deserved this. You yeah. deserve to be tortured and nailed on a cross. Right. Um, as a kid, you know, and, and it's your fault that Jesus died and had to go through all of this. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was like this massive guilt and remorse that I had to believe that this was, you know, my ticket into heaven, but also like, it felt like I, um, had to pay penance or something, you know, it was just like, well, you have to give your life to God because this is what was done for you. Yeah. You kind of feel like you owe, you owe yeah. something. I mean, th this amazing sacrifice that you actually deserve because you're such a terrible person. Yes. <laughs> makes you're such you a terrible seven-year-old. Yeah. They keep saying, well, yeah, but now you're free in Christ, but you better, you know, stay within these lines and mm -hmm. the swimming lane is very narrow and, you know, uh, or else you could yeah. fall away or you could, you know, yeah. uh, become a heretic or, right. you know, yeah. yeah. And so there's always that, that fear, right. In the background. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that was the, um, that was the, the, my orientation towards it. Um, and then of course it was sort of reinforced by, yeah, a worship environment that was really emotional, you know, that really played on um, emotions. And so, yeah, I, I just felt like there were so, so many times of just getting worked up very emotionally. Oh yeah. I remember and, those. <laughs> yeah. And then right on the heels of it, making some like really life altering decision, you know, it was, oh, you know, my, my heart's bleeding open or whatever. I'm so emotionally exhausted and I'm going to like dedicate my life to being a missionary, yes. something like that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. Exactly. I'm, yeah. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Then you yeah. go, okay, I sign up for Africa. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Something like that. And so right. it was, and a lot of that was at a young age. And so I remember like, you know, as I grew as a teenager and getting into college and everything, really having these internal struggles about like, oh, well, you know, I'd like to get into filmmaking or what, you know, but I promised God yes, when I was right. 12 that I would go yeah. be an overseas missionary. And so right. there was like yeah. this struggle to, right. yeah, yeah, to rectify all that. But anyways, um, the Bible, so what do we, how do we view the Bible? Yeah. Well, during my nervous breakdown, um, having that encounter in what I knew was hell. I knew that it was a, like a right. psychological state. Um, the other thing that came to me was 
like, oh, I'm in the belly of the whale. Like, this is what the Jonah story is about. Mm -hmm. When he Mm -hmm. talked about being swallowed into this darkness is, 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 I, I knew where he was. And so sort of, um, you know, I had to go get a lot of like therapy to get my head on straight. So I wasn't at that moment, like I'm a deconstructing Christian now. I didn't even know what that was, but I just knew that that story wasn't literal. However, um, in my own personal awakening and transformation, uh, the best way that I could find to describe it were these biblical metaphors, um, you know, where I, I was like, I was in the belly of the whale, you know, this is where the transformation happens, or I feel like I am being crucified and buried. Like it, all these, all this really strong symbolism felt like an accurate, the closest thing I could get to explaining what was happening to me, both spiritually and psychologically. So, um, the literalism quickly fell away, but I was still really like intrigued in, I I just felt like the stories had a deeper meaning. I felt like that they were mythological and symbolic. And up until that point, mythology had just meant like a lie, like it was a bad word, you know, for someone to say, oh, the Adam and Eve story is a mythological story. To me, as an evangelical, that would have sounded like you're saying that this is fantasy, like someone just went and made it up like Cinderella or something like this. Um, And what I was coming to understand is, no, that it was symbolic representations of psychological processes. Right. And so, um, yeah, that's how I came to view the Bible. And then over the years, I sort of found confirmation of this um in like some academic texts so you know one person who was really influential for me was um joseph campbell and i mentioned Mm -hmm. him in the book um i had never heard i I never heard myth explained in this context um but so anyway so i came to understand mythology as um like maps into the inner world it like to help me locate the universal energies that were flowing through me and also the patterns in my in my life so um yeah that's how i read it now through like a psychological and mythological lens right right no that yeah that makes sense um yeah people are afraid of that word myth mm-hmm. and uh that you know, they they just think, oh, you're gonna, you know, you're you you're off the deep end, and you're an apostate mm-hmm. because you believe some of the Bible is a myth, and it's like, okay, right. yeah, well, right, and 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 um, uh, Mar- I think Marcus Borg has a lot of stuff to say on this as well as Joseph Campbell, but you know, there's just because it's not literal or myth, it's mythological, doesn't mean that there's something that va- not valuable in it. Right. Of course, it depends on the story, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. Even, so there are some know, some things that are pretty pretty ugly in there too. But yeah. But there's a lot of things that are uh, valuable um, if we look at them in a different lens and we and we don't you know, like put ourselves in the uh, in errancy uh, swimming lane. Yeah. Well, and even that too, you come to understand that I was living by a myth before. The, the stuff that I thought was literal or the cosmic arrangement that I, I felt like was the truth was a myth that I was living by. And so 
it, you know, in that sense, that myth, I don't think was accurate, but it was still, it still had the psychological power that myth does, you know, um, when in my myth, God was this retributive being that it controlled everything that I did. Yeah, and so, right. so really a, a huge part of the awakening was waking up to the fact that I was living by a story that wasn't accurate, but it was, that is the power of the myth. And right. so really like my goal with the book was to get people to understand the power of mythology. And, mm -hmm. you know, as much as like we, we argue or try to talk people into, you know, this is wrong or you've got it wrong or whatever. For me, the bottom line is, is like people aren't going to change or they're not going to understand reality properly until they understand what myth is and we come up with like a more accurate myth to live by. Yeah. Right. That makes more, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things that you address is of course, um, evangelicalism is a, a fear-based faith. And at one point you realize the traditional view of hell, uh, it uses fear as an extremely effective recruitment tactic to, keep, mm -hmm. to recruit people and to keep them in. But how did you finally outgrow this fear of hell and other fears that you had? Mm -hmm. Well, so my experience in what I recognized was hell was the growing out of it. Like I knew that that's what it was. Um, and so for me, like the deconstruction process did not at all start with me, um, like researching or seeking or reading other kinds of books or anything. It was that experience of, mm -hmm. of knowing what it was, which was, um, God, I'm trying to remember who said this quote, but essentially like you, you deal with your fear of God when you deal with your fear of death. And, and that, that moment in hell was, was me dealing with my fear of death where I was looking right. at, the end of my life, you right. know? Um, and so that moment of terror, which propelled me, you know, into the trajectory that I needed to go into my life. Um, I just knew that that was like the worst it was going to get. <laughs> like it, it was yeah, right. You've already gone through hell, yeah, yeah. but you yeah. found that it was temporary. It was yes. a, a bridge, so to speak, to, yes. to something glorious. And, yes. and so you weren't afraid of it anymore. Does that, yeah. that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. I just, it was almost like, um, and I'll give a little disclaimer. If anyone's listening with kids, I'm about to like shatter a myth. So <laughs> press mute. <laughs> but it was, it was exactly like believing in Santa Claus uh -huh. and then seeing your parents putting the gifts under the tree. Like yeah. it, it was, right. I just knew this isn't, Santa's not real, you know? Yeah. So that, ex, that experience of hell and understanding what it was and also understanding the function of it, like it was a deeply, um, it was a deeply personal revelation for, for me of like what I needed to heal in my life, what I had been asleep to, the unconscious patterns that I had been living out. Um, it wasn't just this arbitrary place of punishment or whatever it was really this this reckoning with myself you know, judgment day so to speak as i was i was coming face to face with my own life you know yeah um how 
how I had lived it up to that point and how I wanted to live it going forward. And that was in a more authentic way, like being true to this, you know, genuine voice inside of me, which I would equate with Christ. Um, so yeah, that was how I overcame it. What I would say like, it's like consciously recognizing that I was in it and, and that I survived it. So what was, what was kind of amazing about it is like, Oh, I, I went to hell and then I came back, you know? So I knew that it wasn't this eternal thing. It was, it was a temporary psychological cocoon or going back to Jonah. It's like, yes, he, he did get swallowed into the belly of the whale. And what is, what happens in a belly? That's where the old, old is broken down. That energy is metabolized into something new. Um, and then this new creation is is born out of it. So it was like all the old energy that had been used to sustain this really like false or inauthentic life, all that energy was broken down and then available to be reborn into this, this authentic way of living. I had all this new vital life energy like available to me. Yeah. No, it's, it's remarkable. Um, different there's different ways to overcome those fears and you have mm-hmm. you described a very unique one that's um uh you know very effective that you uh found a way to address to address these fears i mean for me i'm i'm more of a um i don't know research historical mm-hmm. you know Right. I want to see yeah. the facts. Yeah. And you're saying like, you're, you know, you're more emotional. I mean, not, not emotional, but more experiential, let's say. Yeah. About, well, know, I would okay, say I'm that that came it. first. Yeah. And then, and then I went and started doing the research right. to find things that mirrored back my actual real life yeah. experience. Right. So, yeah. right. So it happens different w- with different people. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to say. For me, I had to go into the facts, yeah. the histor- history, and then once that was settled in my mind, then the experiential came. Like, oh mm-hmm. my gosh, this burden is lifting. Yeah, you know, of thinking of the world and and heaven versus hell, saved versus lost, us versus them. You know, three quarters or seven eighths of humanity is going to hell, mm-hmm. depending on who does the math. And you know, it's yeah. Just, there's this burden that just lifts. I was like, wait a minute. And it, and then you realize, oh, actually that fits so much more with the teachings of Jesus, you know? Yes. Right. Yeah. Especially when you realize that there's mistranslations of the word hell and eternal yes. punishment in the New Testament. But yes. Yeah. So uh, very interesting. Um, another thing that I really like about your book is you bring out this co- the concept, you call it a concept of becoming your true self. And I think you've mm-hmm. described how, how it happened to you, but you know, how do you see that process working out where people, people, um, this, you know, become through experiences, through study or whatever, deconstructing, they, they can become their true self mm-hmm. as opposed to their false self that was in the past. And how does that relate to some of Jesus' teachings? I mean, like on, you know, you must be born again or, mm-hmm. you, you know, to see the kingdom of God and so forth. Yeah. Well, I use a few parables, um, yeah, the true and false self motif is a theme that I I pull throughout the whole book. Um, because to to me, it 
it really is the message. Um, so I mentioned, you know, in my encounter with the transgender woman, recognizing Christ in her and recognizing Christ in me, and also knowing that that was there from the beginning. That was, it was who I was before I was even born. And um, really the spiritual journey was a, was about waking up to that understanding why I had gone to sleep to it in the first place. And that a lot of that had to do with just basic human development of, you know, as infants, we come in to, we come into the world in this sort of unitive consciousness. There's no, there's no judging, you know, the rational brain hasn't come online yet. It hasn't developed. And so you know, when we see infants, this is why like we love children is it's like, it's just their pure, authentic right. essence. Um, and so I recognize that as what, what was being described in, in the garden. It wasn't this, it wasn't a literal thing. It was a symbolic state of unitive consciousness where there's oneness with the source, you know, represented by God or whatever. But even as infants, there's, there's oneness with the mother, like the infant perceives that they are one with the mother. There's Mm -hmm. no me and her or me and these other people. It's just a total presence to the environment. And then once um, the rational brain starts to develop, the function of that, you know, because of evolution is labeling and dividing, you know, this is good. This is bad. These are my people, you know, this is what all this is. And we start to label and break everything up. And so the symbolic representation of that to me was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you know, like once you, um, once Eve symbolically bites into the fruit or eats the fruit, that to me represented the developmental transition into rational and dualistic thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, where traditionally that has been framed as like, this was a sinful disobedience against God. To me, I saw it as the inherent wisdom of life to, to move forward, you know, Um, to, to embark on the journey of life. And so, if we never obtain the knowledge of good and evil, which would, would represent the rational mind developing, then you don't have a life, you know, that's, that's a yep. essential part of being human. So, but what happens when that kind of takes over and becomes the driving force of life is we go to, we go to sleep to our own souls. So in the story of the garden, you know, it actually only says that Adam was cast out of the garden and Eve, it doesn't say that she was cast out. So to me, Eve was like the feminine creative soul um, that is like the driving life force. And Adam represented like this dualistic mind, the one who labels all the animals and divides everything up. And so it's the mind or the false self that's like constructed this egoic personality, which is like, your conception of who you are, what you're supposed to do, you know, your temperament and personality traits. These are all parts of your psyche, but it's not the same thing as your soul. So essentially Mm -hmm. the soul is like left back in the garden and the mind can't, can't comprehend that it's, 
that the world could be any different than the way that it comprehends it. So, um, yeah. So understanding that that was the spiritual journey was bringing the soul and the mind back into unity, like the two becoming one, one flesh and overcoming like this Mm -hmm. dualistic split, um, felt like the task of, of the spiritual journey and what Christ was talking about. And so then I pull from some parables of Jesus later where he is like, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried out in the field, you know? And so I'm like, I don't know how many times I've driven past fields. I've never been like, there must be a treasure out there, (laughs) you know, you know? So he's like, he's trying to awaken people to the fact that there is a treasure inside you that you have to go, you know, you've, you've lost awareness of it. And so the first step is even bringing people into this awareness that there is Christ or this authentic essence that's already in you from the beginning So it's turning back in and starting to like dig down into this field, you know? Right. So, um, I just, I started to see all the parables as pointing back towards that. Right. So how would you describe, um, the false self? What is the characteristics of the false self in a person and, and the characteristics of, of the true self? Yeah. So the false self, um, which I, I think another word for that, which is fine, is is the ego. It's 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 our concept of ourselves, you mm-hmm. know, um, where all I know myself to be are the roles that I play. It's mm-hmm. attachment to different identities, external identities. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a mom. I'm a Christian. I'm a wife. All those roles are true, but it was until that the point of awakening that was my essential identity i didn't i didn't i didn't understand my own soul i wasn't even aware of my own soul which was something dis- distinct that was playing these different roles if that makes mm-hmm. sense but the ego or false self it's i mean it's rooted in scarcity you know it's rooted in tribalism and mm-hmm. fear because yeah. because it it's just a concept that we hold of ourselves, it's not actually real. It's, and, and the fear is that it's going to be annihilated, you know? So that's ultimately it's rooted in our fear of death is, you know, when I die, who I am or who I know myself to be is going to no longer exist. And that is terrifying (laughs) for, for someone to think about, you know, so that's why we, we hold so dearly onto this concept of like heaven and the afterlife. And I'm gonna, you know, be with all my people, whatever. And, you know, this isn't a conversation about like the metaphysics of that, but really like what we're trying to hold on to is, is our ego. You know, if I just do everything right, then I'll have like a sense of safety in the end. Um, Yeah. Versus the true self for me is I kind of try to describe it as like, um, you realize that it is rooted in eternity. It is like your very life force. And so by relaxing the false self or, um, you know, as Jesus says, like dying to self to me, that's like dying to this egoic personality that is trying to like control and hold on to everything with a death grip when I can relax that personality and my 
addictions and my neuroticism that stem out of that <laughs> neurotic personality, I realized that what what came up and out of me was love, joy. Like when I could just be one with the present moment, all those fruits of the spirit that we hear about is what was inherently just flowing out of me. Mm-hmm. And so I recognize like this is who I actually am. Um, and a lot of my suffering has been forgetting that this is this is innately who I am um, are all these things. I am love. I am joy. I'm peace, you know? Um, yeah, it's it's a new paradigm on, on looking at yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You're just like you kind of grow up into this way of looking at yourself. And if you're in conservative Christianity, it's it's very, uh, uh, you know, defined. Yes. You have to think of yourself and the world this very particular way, even. And what amazes me is even though there's talk of love and love for neighbor and enemy and so forth, at the end of the day, it's like you said, still people are caught up. They're insecure there. There's fear. Fear of hell, fear of judgment, fear of God, fear of uh, a, a leader sometimes, mm-hmm. and there's a desire to to be superior to, and, mm-hmm. and that's the that's the ego really wanting to yes you know take you know control everything so that you can feel better yeah um, but then the true self as you say in your book it's really humanitarian love for everyone enemies yes. alike but that's that's what matters most. And I think that's one, one of the things that my, one of my critiques of evangelicalism is, is they don't, they don't state that and really focus on that loving humanity as being what matters most. It's yeah. all, it's all these other doctrines and, and theologies and, yeah. and it turns into retributive narratives about the world. Yeah. And, which are uh, all very, like you just said, um, the superiority aspect of ego, the, yeah, the external Christian religion, as we kind of see it, uh, it's, it's very egoic, you know, we're we're the best. This is, this is the religion that's going to win in the end. And everyone else is going to be cast into the lake of fire and wiped out by our King Jesus. You know, it's, it's a very egoic, yeah. It's yeah, there's like winners a, and losers yeah. and we're on the winning team. Yeah, it's a collective and, manifestation of all and, these little egos that want right. to win. And not only are, are we on the winning team, but the people on the other team aren't worthy and they're de- they're depraved. Yeah. They're they've refused or rebelled or they refused Christ and so they're expendable. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter, you know. Yeah. Even though you're supposed to love them, but there's a love loving Love becomes very conditional. Yes. You know, you love people so you can bring them into the church, so you can convert them. So, you know, mm-hmm. and not not love for love's sake. Um, so it kind of brings me to some another concept that you bring out is you s- began to see that Christ is in everyone. And mm-hmm. lots of other people, philosophers and theologians have talked about this. Um, but I love the way you bring it out. Um, you you started to see Christ in, in everyone that you encountered. Like you saw that Christ was in that trans woman who, who helped you, who actually Mm -hmm. practically loved you in the here and now and brought you comfort. And, um, uh, I just, 
I, you have a chapter called Jesus in Disguise, mm -hmm. and that uh, share a little bit about what you, that means to you, um, and that helping anyone suffering is doing it for Christ, even if yeah. they're irredeemable, yeah, or supposedly irredeemable. Yeah, I th I actually think that it became even more than doing it for Christ, it was doing it to Christ. Like uh -huh. it, it was that absolute conviction that this, that Christ was the, like the spirit that was animating everybody in everything. And, you know, the caveat I'll put here is that there is psychological disfigurement. This is why I talk about the true and the false self and um, I make a distinction between it's it's not original sin, it's inevitable, an inevitable sin, which means falling asleep to the soul or to the true self. Um, so the actual Greek word for sin is hamartia, which means to miss the mark. Right. And it's and it's fully identifying with this false concept of who we are um, and and for, forgetting about the true self. So. So it was, you know, anytime I would encounter someone, a quote unquote enemy or, or whatever, it was this absolute conviction that Christ was there, you know, asleep in the tomb, if you will. Mm -hmm. And because of the traumas of our life and, you know, the Buddhas, you know, life is suffering. Like there's just this inevitable trauma and suffering in our environment where we have to develop the false self as a coping mechanism to, to drive us forward. So mm -hmm. a metaphor I, I use is like a seed and, and a shell and, you know, what actually grows off the tree is this, this embryo, which then a hard shell forms over it so that the embryo can actually fall from the tree and, and make its, make its own way to fulfilling its own destiny you know, by eventually becoming a tree, but it has to like form this hard shell to, to navigate through the environment and through the brutal parts of nature. And that's essentially like what happens to all of us psychologically is, you know, the false self kind of being this protective shell that we live in that's carrying this little embryo or this generative life force or Christ inside of us. Right. And so I began to just see everybody like it to on some on their own journey, you know, to some degree of in that process, you know? So for a lot of it, where it's like, you know, someone's acting totally neurotic or harmful or whatever. I just like, I began to see it as this giant coping mechanism, mm -hmm. which, yeah. which, didn't, which wasn't an excuse for really harmful or malicious behavior, but, but you stop judging it. Mm -hmm. Not to, not to say like, I don't need protection or we, we don't need to like right. protect these people or get them away or whatever. It's like, it's, it's not that, but it's just making this moral delineation in my mind that like, Oh, this is an evil person or this is a bad person or whatever. And I just, I began to understand how a person got from, you know, infancy, this innocence and infancy to this really destructive behavior. I began right. to, to see it as trauma, to 
see it as psychological coping mechanisms and, and all of this stuff. And really like what, what ends up healing people is, is seeing the Christ in them. It's seeing this image of God in them. And that, that wasn't a metaphor for me. It was, a it was the reality. Mm-hmm. And so it was beginning to, um, to recognize the divine in other people and to speak to that part of them. And so I would find when I would do this, not all the time, but sometimes it was like it, when I mirrored that to people, they recognized themselves, you know, yeah. when you treat people with absolute like dignity right. and conviction that they are precious and, you know, mysterious and magnificent and like, the way that I had been treated by the trans woman, it, it called Christ forward in me. It was like, Oh, it's risen now, you know? Yeah. I, <laughs> so, I love, uh, go ahead, finish your thought. Well, yeah, I just, I just saw the potential for that um, to happen. And I recognized that that is, that is the way that a lot of like mystics and saints and, you know, all sorts of other people throughout history had seen people. So in that chapter about, you know, Jesus in disguise, that's exactly how mother Teresa saw people. It was this conviction of like, Oh, here's this person with gang. Like here's Jesus with gangry. Like I must help him, you know? So, yeah, no, it's, I love the way you describe that. And I, I, um, in my, in my book, uh, breaking bad faith, I talk about, uh, I talk about the exact same thing with, Mm -hmm. with different terms. And it's what you're describing is the uh, the restorative way of looking at humanity mm-hmm. instead of a retributive way. The retributive way is you've sinned, you, you you need to be punished. You know, someone has to be punished. Jesus has to be punished so you can be forgiven. And then mm-hmm. if you don't toe the line, you know, you're going to be judged and you're going to go to hell and, you know, you're not worth anything and in the sight of God. Right. And. And, uh, and until something happens, it's all very conditional, but it all goes, drives back to retribution. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you solve the world's problems by, you know, holding people accountable through punishment. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and not looking at them as, uh, uh, looking at people who are lost their way and doing evil things or wrong things, looking at them with, Uh, an eye that these, like you said, these people are human beings that have lost their way. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why they're acting out this way, right? They haven't found their true self. They're caught in this, you know, cycle. But when you, when you try to reach them, uh, the restorative way, which is what I would call what you just described, you know, you, that's the, that's the hope for actually solving these, these uh, so society's problems is yeah. when you, when people restoratively uh, approach people and draw them into like uh, becoming their true self and leaving behind, you know, whatever wrongdoing they're, do- they're doing. Yeah. So I love, I love the way you describe it in the book and what, what you just said. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I think a really practical example of what, of what you're describing Um I, I don't talk about this in the book, but there's um, this organization called, um, I think it's called the Compassion Prison Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, they do some amazing work. And like, 
as we're talking about like awakening to the true self, it sounds like this delightful experience. <laughs> and in reality, it's it's really like a grief stricken process because to awaken to, to the true self is to acknowledge everything that's happened to you in your life and going back and naming it, acknowledging it, and then nurturing the parts of yourself that were neglected through those difficult things. And so in the compassion prison project, what they do is they go into prisons and, um, you know, they're working with people who have committed atrocious crime, like murder, you know, (laughs) like, like people who are lifers, um, in prison for the things that they've done. But it's this acknowledgement that like the true self cannot come forward in an environment of shame. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, is these inmates are given the, um, the chance to learn about adverse childhood experiences, childhood trauma, and to understand the science of like, you know, if you have X amount of adverse childhood experiences, like your brain is going to be wired in such a way that makes you way it puts you at so much more risk for mental illness addiction you know illicit behavior Mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff and so it's just it's amazing to see some of these inmates be able to go like how did I get from a to z you know what in my life made me feel like it was it was acceptable to take the life of another person. You know, I take responsibility for what I did, Mm -hmm. but I also need to go acknowledge the fact that like, you know, my father left or I experienced this violence growing up at home and I was so terrified. You know what I mean? And, and being able to have compassion for, for the inner child or the true self or the essence that was suffering in those conditions and had no help, you know? Right. No, I, I, I go into some of those examples in my book, um, a different way of looking at prisons, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, we, we tend to think of prisons as a place where you, you hold someone accountable by they serve a prison sentence Mm -hmm. And then, then they're at, only until they're they go through that sentence uh, can they be considered, you know, all right, back to normal or something. Hopefully, but right. of course, the recidivism rate is very high in our country in American mm-hmm. prisons, so the system isn't working, right. right? But what you just described, there are there are on that project, and I mentioned some other ones in my book where, you know, people are starting to look at at, at uh, punitive measures differently and say, these just don't work. We need yeah. to, and, and they're finding that like, for example, in Norway, they have a very different prison system. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they basically rehabilitate people yeah. and, you know, they treat them with dignity and respect. And even though they might've done terrible things, but they're focusing on, you know, this person is lost and we need to help them come, come back. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it costs more to do that. So no one wants to do it. You can't make as much money. But on the other hand, you save money in the long run because you don't have as the crime rate goes down. Right. Because people are you're being truly rehabilitated and uh, restored to yeah. society. So it's, yeah. it's, it's fascinating. But uh, I, I really hope people start to to get a, uh, a vision for this because it's really important because the yeah. way we're doing it now is just not working. Yeah. Well, and part of that is revising the myth because, you know, in, in, 
contemporary Christianity, it it's like, yeah, of course you're a criminal, you know, like you're scum to begin with. And yeah. so there's really no hope from you for, there's no hope right. for you for rehabilitation. Right. It's just yeah. what yeah, you've done is old, unforgivable and right. that's it. Well, the, and then and Christians will say, well, yeah, they just have to accept Christ. So they have these programs in prison to get, to get them to try to buy into these, these, these myths about the way the world works. And they think, well, that's the, that's the problem, the, the issue for everything. That's the sol solution for everything. Yeah. But you're just getting people to buy into, uh, actually a retributive narrative about what God is like. Yeah. Uh, right. So, um, very interesting. We've had a great conversation. We're running out of time. Uh, I had several questions I never got to, but Thank you so much for joining us, Heather. Um, for people who are interested in your book, uh, obviously you can go on Amazon and find it, but you also have a website. Uh, is it returningtoeden.com? Yes, returningtoeden.com. Right. Um, yeah, yep. you can. I have a. You can get to uh, purchase the book through um, the links through my website as well. Um, I do a monthly newsletter called Unorthodox, um, where you can sign up to just basically get what I'm thinking about each month. And, you know, I'll probably put this podcast in the newsletter, you know, right. where you can hear me. And then, um, yeah, on social media, I'm on Instagram as Heather Hamilton one, the number one, or on Facebook as Heather Hamilton author. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I really like the way you've, uh, done your social media and, uh, and your endorsements. I mean, you did a really good job with uh, putting graphics to your endorsements. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to copy it if you don't mind. Please copy <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, okay. And then the other thing is uh, I'm going to meet you in a, uh, in a few days because we're both going to the Awaken conference that's put on yes. by our publisher, Choir Publishing. It's uh, at the, I think it's the Spiro Day Church. Does that sound yeah. right? Yes. In, in Nashville. In Nashville, Tennessee. So if you're questioning your faith and you live in Nashville, there's a safe haven for you, June 9th and 10th at the Spiral Day Church. So, um, Heather, again, it's a pleasure that you could come on the, the Spiritual Brew Pub with us. It's early in the morning for me, so I was drinking mm -hmm. my coffee this time. That was yep. my brew of choice. But yeah, with you some... in solidarity, even oh, though there I'm you three go. hours ahead, I'm still drinking it. <laughs> I don't think you've taken a sip this whole time. Maybe you haven't. I just missed it. But um so, folks, um, that's it for the Spiritual Brew Pub uh, this this episode. And uh, go check out Heather's book and Heather's uh, content. And I hope it brings you uh, a lot of uh, uh, blessing and and a breakthrough in your in your spiritual journey. So, uh, until next time, enjoy responsibly.